sacrifice their livelihoods and reputations to be in his company. But most, I suspect, were just curious to see what all the hype was about, hopeful, perhaps, for some sort of freebie. What he gave them was so far beyond their expectations. Last week, Melissa Files told us about more than 4,000 such followers who flocked to see Jesus. They were nourished by his teaching and his miraculous multiplication of seven loaves of bread and a few fish. He did the same for over 5,000 on another occasion. He cast out demons from possessed people. He brought a dead man back to life. And unlike modern social media influencers, he did so not to increase his revenue stream nor to gain thousands of likes. Rather, he operated from the most selfless of motives, love, and he paid a steep price for it. Mark writes, They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Maybe the man also had bad cataracts. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, Don't even go into the village. No doubt, just as with the Mr. Beast video, this story checks off all the feel-good boxes. We marvel at Jesus, who displays his compassion and power. We cheer for the man whose life will be changed dramatically now that he can see. But there's more going on in this passage than merely the recounting of a man who, thanks to a meeting with a mysterious stranger, now has 20-20 vision. Like many of the miraculous stories in the Bible, this one is also a parable. It exists to teach us something significant and true. As Paul Tripp notes, humans are capable of two types of vision, the ability to see with their physical eyes and the ability to see with their souls, to discern eternal truths about God. Most people have the gift of the former. The latter is far more rare and is of infinite significance. As we know, the opposite of sight is blindness. Like vision, blindness, too, can manifest in different ways. We see it illustrated in the words and actions of many of the Pharisees and teachers of the law. Upon observing their self-serving religious hypocrisy, Jesus blasts them for being blind men and blind fools. Though they've devoted their lives to studying the scriptures, they fail to truly see God, who stands before them in the flesh. Jesus fulfills every prophecy they've studied about the promised Messiah. Still, they look right past him, searching for the diminished version of a savior they fabricated, one who flips the script and demands nothing of value from them, who fails to bring true shalom, godly wholeness and wellness to the world. After Jesus heals a different blind man in chapter 9 of the Gospel of John, the Pharisees dismiss him, saying, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. They missed the forest for the trees, so to speak. They saw God, but they refused to really see him. Spiritual blindness is not just a problem of the religious elite, though. The average Jack and Jill are also subject to it. 
Bethsaida, where Jesus healed the blind man, was a small fishing town by the Sea of Galilee. It was the birthplace of Peter, Andrew, and Philip. Along with nearby Chorazin and Capernaum, dubbed by scholars as the Evangelical Triangle, it became the site of many of Jesus' supernatural acts, including the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus' walking on water. Yet, despite everything they saw and heard from him, many of the people of Bethsaida were blind to Jesus' true identity. They hardened their hearts and shut their eyes to God. In Matthew 11:20 through 22 we read, Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of the miracles had been performed, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? He's suggesting that people like the residents of Bethsaida, who have witnessed grand displays of his power, are due for a harsher judgment. Why? Because the truth is right in front of them. They're fully aware of it, and yet they refuse to believe it. Then there's a second type of spiritual blindness. This particular malaise sets in among those who have embraced Jesus. They acknowledge that Jesus is God incarnate and that his sacrificial death pardons them from their sins, granting them eternal life with him in heaven. And yet, they're unable to see him well for a number of reasons, including spiritual immaturity, pride, and idolatry. As we'll we'll observe with Peter later in this passage, their desire to direct their heart's gaze at things other than God leads them to distrustful arrogance, disobedience, and even needless suffering. Like malnourished children, they fail to thrive because they fail to see that God truly is sufficient, and abundantly so. Indeed, spiritual blindness affects everyone. Without God's intervention, no one could see, and all would miss the message of the gospel. Everyone, including Christians whose eyes have at some point been opened to Jesus as their Savior, is far more helpless and far more dependent upon him than they could ever know. As Tim Keller puts it, the fact that it takes longer for Jesus to cure the man in this story isn't a reflection of his capabilities as a healer. If anything, it's a reflection of how blind the man is, not just physically, but in the grander scheme of things, spiritually. Just as the man is so helpless that he needs his friends to lead him to Jesus, so we too are incapable of finding our way to God unless he enables us. To even want God at all is so contrary to our natures. If there's any part of us that wants to look down on the ignorant masses or let out an impatient sigh as Peter rebukes Jesus for predicting a life marked by suffering, then our own blindness is evident just not to us. Our ability to see and embrace Jesus as our Savior isn't anything we've accomplished through our rare intelligence or moral superiority. Paul is quick to remind us in Ephesians 2.8.9 that it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, 
so that no one can boast. We've been brought into God's family through the grace of Jesus. What spiritual sight we do have is all a gift from him. Now, does it strike anyone as odd that Jesus doesn't seem to get the miracle right the first time? Commentators note that this is the only healing in the Gospels that isn't instantaneous. According to the man, everything looks like a moving blur after Jesus' first spit and touch. And by the way, if you haven't heard Lorraine Lorraine Smith's lecture in which she discusses Jesus' unconventional healing methods, do that afterwards. It's really excellent. So if Jesus really were all-powerful, wouldn't he have nailed the landing on the first pass? Was that a little wobble that we saw? Should we look away and pretend like we didn't notice? No. If anything, we should look harder at that detail and ask why Mark chose to include it. After all, everything God does is both wise and intentional. Remember, this story is a parable designed to teach us something significant. Scholars point out that Jesus' multi-step healing of the man mirrors how God grants a spiritual sight in stages. And we often prefer to think of spiritual conversions as dramatic one-time experiences like that of Paul being blinded by God on the road to Damascus or the thief on the cross next to Jesus. I'm sure they're quick and they make for engaging stories, but they're not God's only MO. Reflecting on my own life, I can see how, like the blind man, God granted me spiritual sight in stages as well. During vacation Bible school at six years old, where I learned that God wore a striped robe, a long beard, and sandals that made his toes look huge in the pictures we colored, to accepting Jesus at 16 years old and attending a charismatic church where on many Sundays I'd convinced myself that I had sinned away my salvation and would kneel at the altar to beg for God to reinstate me while, just as I am, moaned quietly from the organ, to attending a Reformed Presbyterian church years later where I learned that I couldn't lose my salvation, but began to fear that if I let out an audible hallelujah in worship, people might stare at me, or worse yet, they might get poked in the eye if I busted out my praise hands. To the present day, where I care less about what my hands do in worship, but sometimes care more about what others think about my kids, my grammar, my art, my weight, my breath, and other things that probably don't even cross their minds. Now, looking back, I can easily recognize how God had a progressive plan to bring me first to faith in him, and thereafter to keep prying open my eyelids to see him. They keep wanting to droop down. In his holiness, he can't endure the sin in me. And in his love, he doesn't want me to endure the pain that my choice to worship other things will yield in some fashion. I'm still far from having 20-20 sight, but because of his persistence, people look less and less like walking trees than they did years ago. That is all his doing, and all to his glory. Considering how God builds up spiritual sight over a Christian's lifetime, it's no surprise that Mark would follow the account of the blind man's gradual healing with Peter's declaration that Jesus is the Messiah. You see, 
Peter's life is a fantastic example of gaining sight in stages. Considering that he was witness to so many miracles and privy to a few years of rich teaching, it's no surprise that Peter's quick to say, you are the Messiah. His words ring true. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't forbid the disciples who heard the conversation from telling anyone. He still has more to impart to his followers. After all, they'll be tasked with teaching the correct truths about his gospel to those near and far once he is ascended. He has more shalom to bring to the broken world. He doesn't want to risk a premature crucifixion. It's not yet time. But it will be soon. In the verses that follow, Jesus abandons the use of parables. Mark tells us in verse 32 that he speaks plainly to the disciples. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. All at once, Peter's shining moment comes to a screeching halt. In the exchange that follows, he reveals just how limited his spiritual sight still is. Mark tells us, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now let's set aside the fact that Peter, a mere mortal, thought he knew more than God and had the gall to scold him, which none of us have ever done. I'm sure none of us has ever complained about a situation and thought God didn't know what he was doing. Nope, not us. With his rebuke, Peter shows that he still lacks the requisite sight to see who Jesus truly is and what he has come to do. That Jesus' words would provoke Peter so deeply reveals how differently Peter imagined the promised Messiah would be. The Messiah would be splendid and mighty He'd heal everyone and be so well-respected. He'd rescue Israel from Gentile Roman tyranny. Peter had staked his entire livelihood and reputation on such a hope. But a suffering Savior who acted like a slave and washed his disciples' dirty feet, whose idea of a triumphant entry was riding on a borrowed donkey, who'd be ridiculed, falsely accused, and tortured, Killed in the most undignified, painful way? Forget the rising after three days part. I'm guessing that happy news was already lost on Peter once Jesus started talking about suffering. According to Tim Keller, what Peter, indeed all of us, failed to grasp is so aptly summed up in the four-letter word that Jesus uses. Must. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. Now, we all know the difference between the words should and must. One you can slip out of if you're sly enough. The other is urgent. It's serious and binding. Merriam-Webster defines the word must as to be urged, to be compelled by social consideration, and to be required by law, custom, or moral conscience. In using the word must, Jesus acknowledges that his unjust suffering and his upcoming death are crucial to securing our salvation. There is no other way to ensure our return to him than for him to die for us. 
Now, Keller goes on to note that Jesus understands how every relationship works, including the one between God and humans. If one party wrongs another, one of the two will always suffer. Now, if you break my prized face, you have two options. One, you can make a sincere apology, emphasis on sincere, because we all know how far an I'm sorry spoken with an angry huff goes. Maybe you'll offer to pay for the damage or buy me a new vase. Your actions will probably be sufficient to repair the damage done to our relationship. Everyone's satisfied. We move on. Or, two, you could ignore what you did, maybe even blame shift, yell at me for putting the vase on the table behind you, then walk away. In that case, I'm left on my knees picking up the pieces of my broken vase. I'm shaking with outrage, hurt, and frustration over what your actions cost me in both time and money. I'm now saddled with the burden of struggling over and over again to forgive you. When an offense is committed, someone always ends up suffering. This is just as true between two people as it is between God and humans. As the prophet Isaiah says, You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continue to sin against them, you are angry. How, then, can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our, unright- all, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. So who's going to be the one to pay the price for our sins? You and I? Hmm. I'm reminded of a man I once knew in a Bible study years ago. At some point, he had gone blind. One would think that his inability to see would prevent him from visual temptations. And yet he was quick to point out that this was far from the case. He still struggled with lust. The stain of sin was so saturated into the fabric of his being that It didn't need any external provocation to assert itself. We are all that sinful and helpless. How could we ever make up for the wrongs we've committed against God? Who will be the one left holding the pieces of the vase that we broke? Who will pay the price? Jesus will. As the only person who has never sinned, Jesus is the only one qualified to offer himself as a sacrifice to balance the scales, to restore wholeness to our severed relationship with God. He is the innocent, unblemished lamb who willingly ascends the altar to be sacrificed as an act of atonement before God. He must be the one to suffer. Do you know who also knows this to be true? Satan. When he tempted Jesus in the desert by offering him power over the world, he was tempting him to avoid the cross, thereby leaving us with no means of salvation. It certainly would have been the easy way out for Jesus. Matthew 4.8.10 tells us, The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Do you hear Jesus' Jesus's rebuff of the devil also echoed in his rebuke of Peter? 
get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Jesus is fully aware that Satan is eager to torpedo his mission to save us and that he won't hesitate to use Peter in his hateful ploy. In Jesus' choice to forego the shortcut and take the painful route, there's a sobering reminder that we, too, must suffer. It's a given for every Christian. Jesus tells his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Did you hear the word must again? This is not should not deny, should deny ourselves or maybe deny ourselves. We must deny ourselves and take up the splinter-ridden, mortifying burden of the cross. Being a follower of Jesus will hurt in one way or another. Sometimes we'll suffer for reasons beyond our control. Poor choices made by the people in our lives. Surprising downturns in physical and or mental health. Shifting economies. Government upheavals. In some areas of the world, suffering for Jesus may look like sacrificing one's livelihood, even one's life. But sometimes, suffering arises because we want created things more than we want the Creator. We try to thwart the very purpose for which we're designed. God knows that our worship of anything other than Him will only lead to hurt for us and for those in our lives. So he does the loving thing by attempting to pry away the death grip we have on the things of this world. Our relationships, our jobs, our gender, nationality, politics, our race, our age. He demands that we surrender the illusions of control we have over our time, our reputation, our resources, our comfort, our dreams for both our present and our future. Like plucking out a splinter, the process of removing these things will hurt, sometimes for a lifetime. But the alternative is far more painful. God's will is always the best choice, the option that fulfills, the one that leads to life, not death. Sacrificing all things for God is easier to do when we remind ourselves that he's inherently good and therefore desires what's good for us. He gives his disciples both a warning and a promise when he tells them, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life from me and the gospel will save it. Do you believe that God is more than sufficient to inhabit the void you're seeking to fill with the things you want more than him? That he's wise enough to know the timing of what's best for you and the shape it should take? That he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not always how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I want to circle back again to the Mr. Beast story. For a handful of patients, Donaldson Donaldson went one step further beyond paying for their eye surgery. He gave a teenage boy a fifty thousand dollar college scholarship. He surprised another woman with a briefcase containing $10,000. He gifted a new Tesla to a young man who had always dreamed of driving. His generosity will certainly have a profound impact on their lives, but it will only go so far. 
Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not knocking the gift of being able to see. I know I definitely take it for granted. And it's true. Money can help out massively. But if there's no heart change, physical sight and a windfall of cash are merely surface-level cures, bubblegum shoved into the crack of a wall of an enormous breaking dam. Jesus' words are a reality check. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world but to forfeit his soul? If you're listening today and feel like you're seeing Jesus, yet not truly seeing him, then I encourage you to do as the blind man did. Be honest with Jesus. Tell him that the people still look like trees. Don't settle for being legally blind. Ask him for the eyes of faith to see. And talk to someone, here or elsewhere, who can do what the friends of the blind man did. They led him to Jesus. I'd love to speak with you, and I'm sure others would too. Today's passage ends with Jesus telling the disciples, Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. Commentators speculate that these words hint at Jesus' soon-to-come transfiguration. Indeed, six days later, Peter, James, and John will see Jesus take on an otherworldly, resplendent form, though I am guessing he's probably diluting the effect for their frail human sakes. His prediction is a reminder that the kingdom of God is not just in a land far, far away. For the disciples, the kingdom has already come in the form of a humble human who's reversing the curse of original sin by granting sight both to the blind in body and the blind of heart. For post-resurrection believers, the kingdom is also here on earth, alive in our hearts where the Holy Spirit lives and makes Christ known to us. Jesus' words also point to a heavenly kingdom. They encourage us to remember that the suffering we now endure for our faith is worthwhile and that it will pale in comparison to the eternity we'll spend with our Savior. We will be his people, and God himself will be with us and be our God. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Truly, we'll have perfect vision in every sense. With our eyes wide open, we'll see our God in all his glorious radiance. We'll worship him in a way that our sinful, fallen selves never could on earth. And if we struggle to see, it's only because he is too beautiful.